Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, conservative capitulation, Trudeau's unrequited G7 love, and Maxime Bernier on his arrest in Manitoba. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show, Tuesday, June 15th, 2021. Great to have you aboard the program here, Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show on True North. A lot to get to today. Going to speak later on in the program with People's Party leader Maxime Bernier about his arrest by the RCMP in Manitoba for embarking on what he called the Mad Max speaking tour. That's going to be coming up later on in the show. Also going to be talking about the CBC playing nice with the Prime Minister of Pakistan in an interview in which that uh, Prime Minister also called for censorship in Canada, which ended up being a claim he made without any pushback from CBC. That's coming up. But I want to talk first and foremost about what seems to be an increasing trend of conservative apologies. There's a philosophical problem in this that I'll talk about momentarily, but also a very practical one. It's been nine days since that horrific attack on a London, Ontario Muslim family took place, an attack that has galvanized the country, and rightfully so, because events of this nature are thankfully rare, which makes them absolutely shocking to our sensibilities and our understanding of what Canada is. But the narrative that unfolded from that was that this is not rare, that this is something quite common in Canada, something unsurprising that should be, you know, no shock to anyone who lives in Canada. Because underlying a lot of the political discourse, which, as I said on the show last week, I resent has infiltrated what should be a solemn recognition of this family and a a remembrance of them. It's now become politicized, which is quite awful. And what's noteworthy about this is that a lot of the activists who are trying to insert and inject a political agenda into this discussion are doing so because they fundamentally think Canada is a bad place. And that's unfortunate to listen to. But even more unfortunately than that is how many people seem to be accepting that premise in a way. And and this is what brings us around to the apology tour I mentioned at the beginning of the show. A couple of conservative members of parliament have stood out in this way. One in particular is Michelle Rempel-Garner, who released a statement in which she had taken basically atonement as what she needed to seek regarding the 2015 conservative campaign and the barbaric cultural practices tip line, the proposed niqab ban in certain contexts. She said she was sorry to the Muslim community for not fighting against these things then. And that was, I think, a fine statement if it's what she believes and and what she stands up for. But then it went beyond that. Michelle Rempel-Garner's statement was shared by Amira Al-Gawabi, formerly of the National Council for Canadian Muslims, an organization which has never been a friend or an ally to conservatives. And Amira Al-Gawabi had shared this and said, look at the climate conservatives have have created. To which Michelle Rempelgarner replied and says she humbles herself and asks forgiveness and seeks to make things right, saying, I have privilege, I am cis, straight, white, but I am also a woman who works in a system dominated by white maleness, but no excuses, I will do what I can, that is all I can do, but it is much. 
There were some people that thought this was a parody when it was first uh, uttered. Uh, some people that thought that this was uh, some sort of a, a joke. No, she means it. And you know what? To be fair, any politician who speaks in an authentic way about the things they believe, power to them. This is not something you would expect to hear from a conservative. And you may think, all right, well, maybe if this conservative approach to these issues from a conservative MP is going to move the party in the direction that all of these people that are uh, maybe not friendly, friendly to conservatives now, but could at some point vote for, maybe they'll all reward this. Well, just look at the response from the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Immediately, one of criticism. Slim majority of conservatives will support any legislation on online hate. We expect your party to oppose it. You could support it. And if you do that, it'll make the next attack, attack less likely. So these words don't actually win the support from any of the advocates and activists they're supposed to be appeasing. They don't at all. All they do is anger the base and show weakness to a lot of the critics of the right. I've not seen anyone respond to Michelle Rempel-Garner's tweet in a way that suggests, you know what, I was not going to vote conservative before, but now that she's done that, she's acknowledged her privilege as a white, straight, cis woman, you know, I'm on board. I'm not going to do that. So if, and again, this is where I, I have to speak kind of out of both sides of my mouth here, because if it's authentic and it's who she is and it's what she believes, power to her. If it's done because people think this is the way you make friends and win support, it's not going to work. Another example is Tim Upple, longtime a former conservative member of parliament who left and is now back. A Tim Upple, great guy. I've interviewed him a number of times. He put out a statement taking aim at a lot of those very same things that Michelle Rempel-Garner spoke about and says he regrets not being a stronger voice and taking aim at the divisiveness of Harper-era policies. Now, remember, a lot of these MPs that may be speaking out about this era of Canadian politics now owe their entire political careers to that era, to that party, and to Stephen Harper. So for them to start disavowing that as a divisive chapter in Canadian politics, well, they weren't just a part of it. It created their political career. They were inextricably linked with that party in that time. And it is awfully convenient that a lot of them only seem to be raising alarms about it now that they think the media and the political climate has moved in a different direction. And there's a lot of opportunism when you see what seem on the surface as though they are very feigned or contrived apologies that capture a political climate that exists now rather than any genuine reckoning, by and large. Now, I don't know if these are MPs that are going rogue. I don't know if Aaron O'Toole's office or the Conservative campaign is behind this in a way. If so, it is a strategy that is not going to yield anything in the way of dividends. As I said earlier, it angers the base and it lets the Liberals and the NDP and the media smell blood so that they can pounce because all of a sudden they can point to the record anyway and point to your recantment of it and say, well, you know what, if these people are going to pursue these policies and then apologize for them, they can't be trusted. There's no winning. There's no coming out ahead when you do this. Which brings us to the philosophical objection to this. If you are speaking from your heart, an apology is completely fine. And I would say it is encouraged. If you are not, it is not going to do anything at all. And what conservatives would do well to realize here 
is that a lot of the climate that they think is there, that they must play the rules of the game by and all of that stuff, is not all that authentic. It's not all that genuine. And the reason I say that is because there's this growing disconnect between ordinary citizens and the media, ordinary citizens and the political elite, what actual people think and what we're being told actual people think. And I mean, just a few weeks ago, I spoke about uh, transgender athletes in sports, probably one of the greatest examples of this. If you were to poll, you know, 100 people, 95% of them would think uh, this is insane. Why should, you know, some transgender athlete be able to outcompete just by virtue of their biological sex? But if you were to talk to the political elites, the elites at a lot of the sporting associations, they would call you a bigot for raising that very question. The same goes for a lot of things here. If you were to say to every, any Canadian, whether they were born here, whether they immigrated here, whether they're a visible minority or not, and you were to ask them, is Canada a hateful place? They would say no. That's why they live in this country. And a lot of those policies, like the barbaric cultural practices tip line, may not have been politically saleable, but a lot of these things were being driven by concerns from immigrant communities who didn't like people importing the very things that they fled in their home countries. That was where a lot of the support for this came from. And you can talk about this with Jason Kenney, who was a longtime immigration minister in Canada, other conservative MPs. A lot of the support they were getting from people were actually from immigrants themselves who didn't like or were concerned that Canada would become the type of place that they left to move to Canada. And we have Canada Day upon us, and a group of activists, again, are trying to cancel Canada Day in Victoria, B.C. They've succeeded. They've succeeded in scrapping the official ceremony because apparently it would not be conducive to reconciliation to celebrate Canada. And the question to anyone I would ask if they want to cancel Canada Day is, is what is it that draws you to Canada then? If you do not think this country is worth celebrating, why are you here? And that, that's, that's, this is not, by the way, a dog whistle, as they say. I'm asking that of people who are born here. If you think Canada is such a terrible place with a terrible history, point on a map to your model society. Point on a map to your model country and go there. I bet they would love to have you. And if you are someone who wants to move to Canada from another part of the world, as Canada is so often referred to as one of the most welcoming places in the world, the question stands, what is it that draws you to Canada if you are uncomfortable with the Canadian approach to diversity and race. I mean, if we are a country that uh, has a prime minister that stands up at every waking moment and says diversity is our strength, what more are you going to get? What more are you going to get? And, and this is a legitimate question that I've never heard the left actually provide a reasonable answer for. But we are now living in an era where to stand up and say, Canada is not a racist country, is in some way an act of racism. If you look at the way people have been maligned to say that, the way last summer uh, claiming Canada is a systemically racist country became the magic words that a politician had to say, liberal, conservative, doesn't matter, to get the media off their backs. And so many conservative politicians went down that road and accepted that premise. 
and now are finding themselves in the same vein still being criticized. Aaron O'Toole, for example, did everything the media wanted him to do. He came out, he spoke at the vigil for that Muslim family who was slain by a killer, a killer, by the way, who has now been charged with a terrorism related charge, which is very important. And this is uh, as police go forward with their investigation. Aaron O'Toole did that. And what was the media coverage? Just look in the Toronto Star, focusing on, well, he says he cares about all these things now, but remember, he voted against M103 a few years back, so uh, I don't, don't know about that Aaron O'Toole guy. It's never going to be enough. It is never going to be enough. So if you're doing it just to appease the mob, don't even bother because it's not going to work. This summer, the Conservatives have, alongside every party in Parliament, agreed to host an Islamophobia summit. Now, I don't know what this summit is going to look like. I, if it's about just diagnosing things that are happening in society the same way they're doing for the anti-Semitism summit, have at it. But I fear the response is going to be very predictable because the government has already determined it wants to legislate against what it calls online hate. And when you say to grieving citizens in the Muslim community and the Canadian community at large, when you say to a grieving family, we're going after online hate, it sounds nice. It sounds like the kind of thing that's going to make a difference. Most people don't realize, well, hang on, hate speech is already illegal in Canada, so what other speech are you going to go after? And invariably, discussions about banning online hate speech will result in a lower threshold for hate speech than the one that exists now, which means you're talking about online censorship. That's what we are moving towards. And this brings us to an interview that took place on CBC's Rosemary Barton Live, an interview in which she spoke with the Prime Minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan. And they spoke about a number of things. He expressed his condolences and very quickly pivoted to what he believes is a growing problem in the West, which is Islamophobia. He didn't offer a solution per se, but Rosie Barton offered him one. Take a look at this exchange. It appears it was uh, one person uh, radicalized in some way on his own who did this. W what is it that government should be doing, for instance, to shut down online hate toward Muslims? I think there should be a very strict action against it, this, because you see these uh, hate uh, websites, which, which again, as I said, would divide, divide humanity by creating hatred, ignorant about the other human community, and you, you target them and, and, and uh, uh, this hate material, and especially with the growing social media uh, and social media is a, is a completely, you know, the world is just coming to grips with it because it's a new phenomenon. Uh, and and unfortunately, I mean, while, while there are so many benefits of social media, it's changing the whole world. But this one particular bit when there are these hate websites which, uh, which create hatred amongst human beings, there should be an international action against them. And, and what would that look like to you, Prime Minister? What would be the, the mechanism for doing that, if you will? Whenever the international community, and by that I mean the world community, the world leaders, whenever they decide upon taking action, this will be dealt with. The problem is at the moment there is not enough motivation. The, the, uh, some international leaders or uh, leaders in the Western countries actually don't, don't understand this phenomena. They too think that the Muslims are these weird people who have these weird customs uh, and they need to be uh, uh, put in place. 
So it just needs to be brought together and there has to be understanding. And this yeah. can be promoted by world leaders. Do you plan to reach out to Justin Trudeau to have a conversation about this? Yes, I will. Uh, I've, I've had previous conversations with Justin Trudeau as well. And I have to say we mostly agree with, uh, with most things. By the way, you should watch the entire interview. It's about 10, 11 minutes long, and not a single challenging question is asked. It is the leader of a country that has a dismal human rights record, no religious freedom, no free speech, getting a completely free ride on Canada's state media, propagandizing to Canadians, and in this case, selling Canadians on internet censorship. But it wasn't even his idea. The premise for the question that government should clamp down on online speech came from Rosie Barton, the CBC host. And at first I thought, oh, maybe she's doing this interview trick where you, where you get someone to say something and then you, you hammer them on it. And no, she just moved on and talked about, so how's your relationship with Justin Trudeau, basically? And then that was the other dimension of this, that the Prime Minister of Pakistan says, yeah, he and Trudeau have spoken about censoring online hate speech and they agree on pretty much everything. At this point, it's just, you know, a he said, but I would be very interested in hearing Justin Trudeau's response to this. If those two have been all buddy-buddy when talking about censorship, we've got bigger problems in Canada. So at a time when Canada should be digging in its heels and supporting free speech and saying what I said last week, which is that free speech did not claim the lives of this family in London, we now have the Pakistani Prime Minister shilling for censorship on Canadian state media without having to field any criticism of it. And later on in the interview, Rosie Barton gave, I guess, what might be more of a challenging question, although she didn't push him on it, which is to say, all right, you're, you're speaking out about how Muslims are treated in the Western world. What about Uyghur Muslims in China? And he said, ah, you know, China's a friend. Uh, anything we want to bring up with them, we'll just bring up privately and, and not here. But the West, the West is the problem. And she just said, okay. And not a single reference to Pakistan's human rights record, to the lack of religious freedom in Pakistan, not a single reference until this little, like, 10-second blurb at the end of the interview after she's cut uh, Prime Minister Khan loose. Then she says, oh, by the way, I should say, you know, Pakistan's not great about this. You just had the guy on. Why didn't you bring it up when you were talking to him? So there was something quite shameful about uh, CBC's handling of this. But beyond that, that this appetite seems to have a, a place in Canada right now, this appetite of censorship, that there seems to be some receptive current to that sweeping through Canada is downright dangerous. And the Liberals have been promising this online hate uh, restriction bill for months now. They Actually, it's been going back since prior to the 2019 election. And I just know that like when they introduced the order in council banning various models of firearms, they are waiting or were waiting for a moment at which that bill would have the most impact. And if the liberals introduce this bill now, especially while the accused in this attack is facing a terrorism charge, what's going to happen is it's going to make it very difficult for anyone to oppose it because it's going to look like they are being insensitive to the human toll of online hate, even if free speech, again, is not the thing that we can blame this attack on. And Justin Trudeau, even without knowing, Justin Trudeau, without knowing anything about it, this is before the terror charges were laid, by his own admission, not knowing what was happening, 
blamed online hate for these murders. Take a watch. Uh, we just had a terrible tragedy a couple of nights ago uh, where a Muslim family, three generations, out for a walk on the side of the road, uh, and uh, they were viciously and inexplicably uh, run down deliberately. Uh, and we don't yet know all the causes or, or reasons, but there is probably uh, an element of online uh, incitation to violence or, or access to things that we have to think about. And I think that becomes all of our responsibility uh, to work together to make sure that we are cracking down on hatred, that we are not uh, allowing people who represent a small fringe of the society uh, to take actions that weaken the fabric and the coming together of our, of our entire, uh, you know, communities. So Justin Trudeau quite brazenly without the facts can say, oh yeah, this is an online hate thing. The liberals are already laying the groundwork to politicize this tragedy. And yes, this act of evil for their own partisan political gain. Except this isn't just a gain of the liberals at the expense of the conservatives. This is a gain of liberals in the government at the expense of Canadians' freedoms. Which is why this is such a frustrating and yes, infuriating at times dialogue. Because whenever someone talks about banning online hate speech, they are curiously avoiding defining hate speech and curiously avoiding the fact that hate speech is already illegal in Canada. It just has a very high criminal threshold. Any restrictions below that only narrow the confines and narrow the boundaries of discourse. And now it's a global effort. We've got the endorsement of the Prime Minister of Pakistan. Well, what more do we need to justify this policy? I would say that is probably the greatest justification for why this bill should be defeated. Just before we take a break here, a few words on the G7 summit. It's beyond mask theater now. Trudeau was wearing the mask, and then he was doing the elbow bumps. And then, as you see, they're all just standing shoulder to shoulder, cheek to cheek, looking up at the flyover and partying it up and sitting down and having a meal. The pandemic is over in Cornwall for the G7, just as it's over in Brussels, where Trudeau later hopped for a NATO summit. But this story in Bloomberg, you've probably read it by now, but I have to share it with you. Angela Merkel is stepping down. She's not running again, which means as far as the politicians who make up the leaders of the G7, Justin Trudeau is the longest serving. So he's been there the longest period of time compared to all of his counterparts. And the Bloomberg article says he is positioning himself as the new elder statesman, but no one sees him owning the role in the way the German chancellor did. And they say even if Joe Biden's new to the presidency, he's got lots of experience. Macron has aggressively positioned himself as Angela Merkel's heir in Europe. The Italian prime minister, Mario Draghi, has years of running the European Central Bank, and he tends to make an impact and make a big noise whenever he speaks up. And then it says, in the company of such heavyweights, the leader of the smallest G7 economy cuts a marginal figure in spite of efforts to be the new dean as he became known among the Canadian delegation at this weekend's summit. So it sounds like the Canadians have been trying to like pump up this idea of Justin Trudeau being the leader of the G7, but no one else is paying attention and no one else cares. And if you want more evidence of that, take a look at this. Canadian officials say the 49-year-old Prime Minister genuinely believes he can help the UK and the European Union find a solution to their trade dispute 
No one has taken him up on the offer, it seems, even as Brexit tensions boil over on the last day of summetry. So uh, Canada is desperately trying to carve out a niche, and it's this middle power delusion I've talked about in the past, where Canada thinks that it has a much greater impact on the world stage than it truly has. And Justin Trudeau is the embodiment of that, whether it was the United Nations Security Council seat or now trying to position himself as the dean of the G7, a role that no one asked him to fill and no one wants him to fill. And his longevity as Canadian prime minister, for now anyway, doesn't seem to be convincing when you're going toe-to-toe with the U.S. president and the British prime minister and the French president and all these other people who are, whatever I may disagree with them on, uh, more heavyweights than Justin Trudeau is certainly when it comes to global politics. All right, we've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. Not sure how many pictures a video is worth, but I do want you to take a look at this because what you will see is more insane than how I could ever imagine describing it for you. Afternoon, sir. Yes, Google yes. Park with the RCMP. Yeah. I can get you step out of the vehicle. I'm going to place you under arrest right now. Yeah. Right now, you're under arrest under the uh, provincial health orders. Okay, so if you could just put your hands behind your back, face towards the vehicle. Okay, put, give me one hand here. I'll get you to stay in the vehicle, okay? Thank yep. You. The other hand. Do you have any weapons or anything on you, sir? Weapon? No, no weapon. Only, anything on you only that's my words. Anything, anything like that? Sorry? Anything on you that's going to hurt me or anything like that? No, no, okay. anything will hurt you. Only my words, only my philosophy, only what I believe in. Okay. All right, come on over this way. In that video, People's Party of Canada leader Maxime Bernier arrested by the RCMP in rural Manitoba, not just given a a ticket or a fine for violating some lockdown restriction, but as you can see, uh, ordered out of his vehicle, frisked, handcuffed, put in the back of a police car, and then taken to jail where he stayed for the better part of Friday afternoon, late into the evening, was eventually released on bail. But as we'll talk about shortly, you can never get that time back, time that your liberty has been taken away, time you've been forced to spend behind bars. Maxime Bernier's been unapologetic about this. He says he has a right to stand up for his constitutional freedoms. Let's talk about that with him now. Maxime Bernier, People's Party of Canada leader, joins me on the line. Maxime, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Andrew. Now, you're back home now, so they, they didn't detain you for too long, correct? Yes, eight hours. That was long enough. And, and one thing that, that people would have seen there and heard there in the video that I, I thought was very clever and, and very important, which was that they asked you when they're doing the arrest if you had any weapons, and you said, only my words. Explain that. Yeah, first of all, because it's uh, it's not about COVID anymore. It's about political repression. As you know, just uh, Thursday before I started my tour in Manitoba, Friday morning, I was arrested Friday at 2 o'clock p.m. and released around 11 o'clock p.m. the same day. But uh, it was all about, you know, not the, the, the premier of uh, Manitoba, Mr. Pallister, 
didn't want me to be there. And actually, he did a press conference the day before Thursday, and he said if Maxime Bernier is coming here, his wallet will be affected. So he, he, he doesn't want an, an, a political opposition. And so, you know, I did uh, my goal to do uh, meetings with people in Little Town in Manitoba. I started at uh, 11 o'clock, Little Town there, and I had a meeting outside in a park and with my partisan and, uh, and the members of the People's Party of Canada. And my goal was, as a politician, to be ready for the next election. I'm campaigning all across the country. And as you know, the People's Party of Canada is the only uh, party uh, against the, these uh, draconian lockdowns. So I, I spoke with them and uh, I answered their questions. We were 15 there. And just after that event, the first one in the morning, Friday, the police came and gave me two tickets. And they said, uh, if you do another rally, you have a, a chance to be arrested. So after that, I knew that I was taking a chance. And I called my lawyer. And uh, he told me, Maxim, it's, it's your constitutional rights to travel across the province and to speak. You're a politician. And uh, you have to explain your platform. You have to uh, gain support. And we understand that. So I decided to do the second event in a little village, uh, Saint-Pierre-Jolie, uh, about a thousand people, maybe an hour south of Winnipeg. And uh, we did that rally in a park. And uh, at that time, I think we were eight, uh, including myself, outside social distancing. And I was speaking to them. And actually, the uh, COVID-19 uh, health uh, orders in Manitoba, they, they're not allowing a meeting outside more than five persons. So, and after that rally, police came, and uh, you saw it in the video, and they arrested me and handcuffed me and uh, treated me like a criminal, uh, just because, you know, I was exercising, uh, I was speaking my freedom of speech, my freedom of assembly. And actually, I was the only one. All the other uh, person over there uh, didn't have any tickets. Uh, they were not in jail. That was uh, motivated by the premier of Alberta, and, uh, and to try to stop me to campaign. I was uh, supposed to have a big rally, a real open to the public rally that Friday night. I was in jail, was not able to, to be there. And Saturday afternoon, I was supposed to have a good, a big rally also in Winnipeg, open to the public. Uh, and so, but the police uh, released me around 11, 11.30 p.m. Friday night. And they were very direct uh, that I was not welcome and I must take the first flight back to Montreal. That's what I did uh, early Saturday morning. So, so that's, that's crazy that now a politician cannot speak in, uh, in, in a province of our country. It's like being in China. If your plan was to fight this and to take these tickets to court eventually and to stand up for your rights, why not go ahead with the Saturday rally? Why did you decide to, to basically go along with what the province wanted and go back home? Yeah, first of all, because actually I would be back in Manitoba. I would campaign in Manitoba as soon as I would be able to do that. Uh, second, 
I need to appeal in from the court. One of the conditions for me was to uh, bail uh, $100,000 to be sure for them, to be sure that I'll be in Manitoba July the 27th. And I will, I will do that uh, contestation in court and, and we, will, we will win that for sure. So, and also uh, the other risk for me was uh, to be back in jail for more than eight hours until the 27th, uh, June 27th. And uh, I don't have time for that. Uh, you know, we'll be in an electoral campaign maybe early this uh, fall. So, and I had a plan to campaign all across the country. The risk was too high for me to be in jail for a longer time. And, uh, and I had a full agenda during the summertime. One interesting aspect of this is that they accused you of violating the, the gathering restrictions and also of violating the province's provincial quarantine. So if anyone goes from out of the province to Manitoba, they say they have to isolate for, for 14 days unless they're given an exemption. And, and I actually wanted to do some filming of a documentary I'm working on in Manitoba and specifically didn't because of that policy. Although we are supposedly in Canada guaranteed free movement between provinces. This has been a hallmark as old as Confederation. Was that something you were very aware of going into it, that, you know, within provinces, provinces don't have the right to uh, put up barriers? Yeah, absolutely, yes, because the uh, the civil servant at the head of the Department of Health in Manitoba uh, sent me a letter the day before saying that I'm not welcome, and if I'm going there, I need to quarantine, like you just said, for 15 days. And my answer was public to that. I tweeted uh, just after that, that, you know, uh, I have a constitutional rights to travel across this country and I will, uh, I will be there. And uh, that's why, you know, uh, they, they arrest me. But that's unconstitutional, illegal, and all that is not based on science anymore. It's based on compliance. It's uh, an authoritarian government in, uh, in Manitoba. And, uh, and I will fight that in court July 27th. So let's talk about the politicians that are putting this forward. We have not seen in Ontario, where I live, uh, anyone as w of I'm, that I'm aware of offhand jailed for this. But in Alberta, which has Conservative Premier Jason Kenney, we've seen pastors behind bars. In Manitoba, which has a, a premier who positions himself as a conservative, Brian Pallister, uh, we s have seen you jailed. Uh, why is it that we're seeing these from conservative governments that are traditionally supposed to be the most freedom-loving governments and the most freedom-loving politicians. You're absolutely right about that. I hope I can have the answer uh, of your questions. And if you look at in BC, it's an NDP government, and they were the freest uh, province uh, in, in all the country. I was there before, and I was able to eat in a restaurant inside uh, without any uh, uh, draconian measures and being free to do what you want to do in a BC government in uh, in in an NDP government, sorry, in BC. So I, I really don't understand. And speaking about Alberta, I know personally Jason Kenney. I was sitting with him around the cabinet table when I was a conservative minister, when he was a minister. He was a real conservative at, the, at that time. Now I don't recognize him. I, I think all these are premiers, and you can include the, the, the premiers of Quebec, Legault. They are following the uh, establishment medical uh, experts. 
and uh, and they don't want to have any other point of view. Uh, and this they scared the population in the beginning. And actually, in Quebec, as you know, Andrew, they spent more than one hundred and thirty-five million dollars last year to uh, to on advertising on COVID nineteen. It was pure propaganda, more than every other provincial. Uh, governments in this country. So with all th that money that is spent, the fear, and I think they, 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 they enjoy also their authoritarian powers. I really don't understand why it's supposed to be conservative uh, government that are, uh, that are doing these uh, lockdowns. And it is also worth noting that right now we have Justin Trudeau overseas, elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder with, with all of these world leaders. But also, let's go back to last year. Justin Trudeau took a knee at a Black Lives Matter protest in Ottawa, which was an illegal protest. He, he took a knee there, surrounded by his own police officers, the RCMP. They didn't arrest him, but the RCMP in Manitoba uh, arrest you, and not only arrest you by giving you a, a ticket, but, but actually handcuffed and, and put to jail. And, and the double standard is incredibly, incredibly stark here. They don't like. They don't like the opposition. They don't like what I'm saying. And it's why I said that, you know, the only weapon is my words. I'm a politician and what I believe. And they don't like that because they're not, they're not following our constitution and they don't want that to be well known. Uh, they, they prefer to keep their, their authoritarian powers with that uh, uh, health or with these health orders. Uh, so so I, I feel like uh, not being in Canada, uh, it, it, it's sad. It's sad that this is happening in 2021 in our country. And if you look around the world, like you just said, in the U.S., it's all open. You can do a, the majority of the states are open, no more lockdowns uh, in other countries also. But here in Canada, we are one of the worst. Um, it, it's, uh, we need to fight. And I don't understand that we don't have any opposition in provincial uh, parliaments or legislatures and also uh, in, in, in Ottawa. The official opposition are not opposing that. They're, they're not doing their job. Uh, it's, um, it's, it, 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 we are in a crazy world. Well, when Ontario MPP Randy Hillier was charged at uh, Queen's Park, I believe it was a, a few months ago, I had said that an opposition politician being charged for protesting the government is a, a story you'd expect to see in, in Belarus, in China, in Russia, but it's happening in Canada. Uh, they went one step further with you and actually put you in jail. Again, opposition politician jailed, not a headline we would expect to see in Canada. But you are right to point out that this is very political. The people that are prosecuted are people who protest against the government. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and they, don't, they don't want us. You know, we are uh, uh, dissident and, and, and they don't want any dissident. And they will, they will have to deal with it. And I'll be back in Manitoba. I'll be back on the road uh, this week. Uh, you know, it's too important. It's not about Maxime Bernier. It's not about the People's Party of Canada. It's about our ideas, our values, our freedom. And I, I hope that uh, a lot of people will look at it twice. You know, we are in Canada and we cannot take for granted our freedoms anymore. People must realize that and they must do the fight. And I will uh, certainly cover that when you are back in court. So thanks for coming on, Maxime Bernier, leader of the People's Party of Canada. Always a pleasure, Max. Thank you, Andrew. Have a nice day.
That was Maxime Bernier. And I will say, I I know I've made this observation before, when you get a a ticket or a fine, I think it's an overreach in a lot of these uh, lockdown-related offenses, but you can fight that in court. You're not out any money for the fine unless you lose. When you are put behind bars, when you are jailed, whether it's for eight years or for eight days or for eight hours, that is a point of your life a period of your life you can never reclaim. That is liberty that has been taken away from you. And these things are are very important because you can never undo that no matter how small a chunk, relatively speaking, it might have been. So when Maxime Bernier, whatever you think of him, whatever you think of his party, when he's put in jail for attending a rally of, what did he say, eight people, we're not talking about a super spreader event here like some other possibilities, when he's arrested and put in jail for eight people, people at a rally. That is a level of confiscating liberty that is incredible for a country that relishes freedom as Canada supposes to. Absolutely shameful. We've got to leave things there. There won't be another episode of The Andrew Lawton Show from me this week. I'm working on a special project, so I have to hunker down and focus on that. But you'll get more from that and about that in the coming days and weeks. But my thanks to you all. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.